it's uh, a blessing to be here this morning with the people of God, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I hope that that, that is how you view uh, the, the folks you see this morning sitting across from you and down the aisle. We are a family. Uh, we are brothers and sisters with all Christians in the world at all times, and it's one of the reasons why we can move to a new place or we can go and visit a place and we find such uh, affinity and, and, and such family among God's people wherever we go. But we are uh, gathered here as a local church and so we get to live out that family identity alongside of the, the people here at Four Corners Church. So it is a great privilege to come together again, worship our God and to sit under his word together to do this together. So if you would go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We are this morning in verses 12 to 14. Romans 6, 12 to 14. The title for the sermon today is Life After Death. You'll see that up here on the screen. You can write that down if uh, the kids among us this morning, if you're taking notes, keeping up with the the sermon points in the outline, life after death. Now, typically, when you hear these words, you think of life after physical death, life after your funeral, life after the grave, life after death. And that is what it always means when we talk about it generally in conversation. But as we've seen recently, Paul wants Christians to understand that as Christians, we have died. A death has taken place. We have died to sin. And what this means is that the Christian life is, in reality, life after death. That's what's happening right now this morning for all of us gathered here who are Christians is We are living this life after death. Life after we have died to sin. Life after we have been crucified with Christ. Now, this is probably an aspect of our identity in Christ that we tend to neglect. If we were to point to our heavenly citizenship card We talked about that a little bit when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, a citizen of heaven. If we were to pull out our citizenship card, that's not the first thing we think of or point to. It's kind of on the back of the card in the lower right corner. What we see first are things like forgiven or adopted as a child of God and so forth. As we think about who we are, our identity in Christ, well, one of those identifiers or one aspect of our identity in Christ is that we have died. And I think part of the reason sanctification seems to elude us is because This aspect of our Christian life is on the back of the card in the bottom right corner rather than on the front in big 
bold letters. That's where Paul wants to put it. He wants to put it smack dab in the front. And he wants us to understand as a result of all that he said so so far about the gospel, as a result of all of that, we are living life after death. We have died to sin. Let me say it this way. We have gone from being dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, to being dead to sin, Romans 6, 2. Isn't that incredible? I mean, just when we think about our relationship to sin, many things we could say about salvation. But when we think about specifically here, our relationship to sin, how much should we celebrate the grace of God that we can be said to be, before becoming Christians, dead in sin, and now we're dead to the very thing in which we were immersed? What incredible grace from God. And Paul's description of all that I just said comes to us in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, with a conclusion or summary in verse 11. And this is where we finished off last week in Romans 6, 11, which is really a summary of the case, the argument that Paul has been making in verses 1 to 10. And here's what that verse says, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Big summary statement there. The living dead. That was the sermon title for last week. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Those were our two points. This is who we are. And this is who we must consider ourselves to be. You know, the Christian life in large part is a battle for the mind. It's a battle for the mind. And I don't just mean the values and worldviews and and trends and fads of the world. I mean a right view of self in line with what Paul has presented to us here. The battle for the mind. The battle for considering. The battle for reckoning. It is incredibly important how we think about ourselves as Christians. Let me say it this way. We must see ourselves truly in order to live rightly. You will not live rightly as a Christian unless you view yourself truly in line with what we are seeing here. And this Living rightly is the focus for today as we come to these three verses. Verses 12 to 14. Paul has explained who we are, and now he clearly tells us what to do. In grammatical terms, for those of you who like or know, or maybe you're homeschooling. If you're homeschooling, you have to. You have to relearn grammar. In grammatical terms, he's given us the indicative already, and now he brings us to the imperative. The indicative, what is the case, what is reality, what is true, and now the imperative, what he commands, what he directs, what we must do. And this, 
By the way, this imperative really began in verse 11 with consider. So we've already turned the corner from the indicative to the imperative. As Paul is telling us, look, there are things you must do. The Christian life is by no means a passive affair. It is not something in which we just sit and absorb and get carried along. And maybe that's your view of the Christian life. It's easy to fall into that pit. We celebrate the grace of God. We celebrate the initiative of God. We celebrate the fact that God comes to us totally apart from ourselves. And yet God calls us in our sanctification to be active and not passive. And I fear that many think in passive terms. Hopefully God through this passage today will wake us up to this active pursuit of holiness in fear of God. If you would please stand with me as we read God's word. As I said, our verses for today are verses 12 to 14, but I'm going to go ahead and read all of uh, verses 1 to 14. And be listening for this, what I've introduced so far. Be listening for how verses 1 to 11 set up who we are, and then how verses 12 to 14 then come in and tell us what to do. This is God's holy word. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know Notice all the no language. We know, we know, this is Christian truth. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And now our passage for today let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his help. Help to preach, help to listen, and that God would take his word and powerfully apply it to our hearts. Apart from the Holy Spirit, this is just vain. It's nothing. No power, no results, nothing. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would take this and use it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you and Thank you that we love you, God. We know that we would have no love for you if it were not for your gracious new birth of us by the Holy Spirit. As Jesus talks about in John 3, we thank you that by your grace we have been regenerated, made new. Father, we come here this morning as new creatures in Christ. And we celebrate that fact. We celebrate all that that means which boggles the mind and is so far beyond our comprehension. And yet it is clear for us in your word who we are, yet so deep. We thank you for this aspect of who we are and that is that we have died to sin and we are alive to you through Christ. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand what Paul is saying here that you would help us to understand what the Holy Spirit has inspired for your people throughout the centuries who have come to this wonderful text century after century after century and have been fed with bread from heaven. And we come this morning asking that you feed us with your word as it is explained and, and Lord, as your spirit takes it and makes it real and applicable to each of us, Father, would you do that work in our hearts? We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you for the glory of his person, the God-man. We thank you that he is truly God and truly man, that he has passed through the heavens and that he is seated at your right hand, interceding for us even now, individually and as a church. And so, Father, we come through Christ, in the name of Christ, boldly to your throne of grace, and we ask for help right now, Lord. We ask for help that you would show us the infinite, matchless glory of Christ, what he has done for us, what has been accomplished, and that you would show us in that what we are to do now, how we are to live now in a sea of godlessness and idolatry in a sea of anti-God sentiment and rhetoric, Lord, we ask that you would make us holy in this generation as your people. We pray that your word would have its effect in us now, fully equipping us for every good work. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're asking, what does life look like now For the person who is dead to sin but alive to God. What does life look like for the living dead? For the Christian. Because that is what you are. So three things to look at this morning. One point for each verse. First, our condition. 
Second, our conduct. And finally, our confidence. I think that's what we find as we come to these verses and as we ask ourselves what we do now in light of who we are. And the logic of these verses, I think, takes us from our condition to our conduct, finally in verse 14, to our confidence. So let's look at the first point, our condition. Verse 12. Look with me there. Let's read that again. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This first directive of the apostle functions as a heading and a lead sentence really for the next verse. We're getting down to the nitty gritty in the next verse. In other words, we'll get more detail on what he means in a moment when we consider our conduct as we come to verse 13. But for now, I want you to see our condition. And as we think about our condition, in light of verse 12, I think we have kind of have to split that into two parts. Who we are and what we face. Who we are and what we face. This is our condition. So let's look first at who we are. Paul begins this verse with the word, therefore. And of course, as we all know, therefore points us backwards. That cheesy little sentence, when you see therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Well, there you go. I said it. So you do. You have to go back. You have to kind of rewind and look at what comes before. And here we see that, as we've already discussed, we are those for whom the power and domination of sin have been broken. That's the big idea, or one of the big ideas that we've seen as we come to this word, therefore. We are those for whom the power of sin and its domination over us have been broken. Therefore, Paul launches then into verse 12. Remember back in Romans 5, when Paul was contrasting Adam and Christ in Adam, sin and death reign in Christ, righteousness and life reign. So we have these two dominions, these two kingdoms, if you will, although you don't want to press that too far, but we have these two dominions, these two spheres, sin and death, righteousness and life. United to Jesus Christ, we have been transferred from the realm or sphere of sin and death to the realm or sphere of righteousness and life. So listen to the way Paul describes this in Colossians 1. I love this language of transfer. Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom. Notice the language. That's language of dominion to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's not like God just came along and delivered us from something, from darkness, sin, and death. He, he delivered us from the bad thing, and he just brought us on over to the beautiful, marvelous, wondrous thing, which is to be in the kingdom of his beloved son. And last week, we talked about 
how guilt and power, the guilt and power of sin are related to one another. So these two categories of, of guilt and power, we stand under sin's condemnation. But we also, prior to coming to Christ, we, we stand under the dominion of sin and death. Death, the inevitability, you might say, of these things in our lives. So what's my point? Well, look at these first few words as we think about who we are. So we're looking at our condition, and we're looking first underneath that at who we are. And here's what, here's what I'm getting at. The first few words say, let not sin therefore reign. And what we need to realize as we come to these wondrous words is that we are people for whom, listen to this, for whom that is even possible. Just, just get that. Just stop right there, take a breath, and think about that. We are people to whom God can say, don't let sin reign. For sinners in the world, that is not, that's a non-category. Sin reigns, period. Period. And pervasively. And we are told here that we are not to let it reign. Reminding us of who we are as those who no longer have it reigning. Second, we see what we face. So as we think about our condition, we see who we are, but then we see what we face. It is admittedly confusing. And you may, you may have I had some conversations after the service last week to this effect. Uh, just a little confused about this, this language that Paul uses here. It is admittedly confusing to think that we are both dead to sin, okay, and yet we are to put sin to death, Romans 8.13. This is confusing. We have already crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24, and yet we are not to gratify the desires of the flesh now. Galatians 5.16. We have put off the old self. We've put it off with its practices. Colossians 3.9. And yet now we are to put them to death and put them all away. Colossians 3.5 and 8. What, what in the world? This is confusing. Is it away or is it here? Is it off or is it on? Is it dead or is it alive? It's hard to wrap our minds around. Which is it, Paul? Are we dead to sin or are we killing sin? Have we put it off once and for all or do we need to constantly put it off now, daily? And of course, the answer is yes. Yes and yes. As Christians, we stand in the already not yet space between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's where we find ourselves. We're in the already and yet not yet. There is a sense in which it has been accomplished and a sense in which it is yet to be fully accomplished, consummated. We are new creatures in Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, but as new, born-again creatures, we still carry around, and listen to this, we still carry around our mortal bodies. Mortal because they are part of the old in Adam fallen creation. We still carry around these mortal bodies that are participating in this in Adamness. And how do we know that? Because you're going to die. And your body is going to decay. It's coming for you. Even though you are a Christian, though you may die, you shall live. We will all die because our mortal bodies are part of the mortality that defines us since we were kept from the tree of life. The end of Genesis 3. And as such, we must contend. We must contend with the passions and desires of that old fallen man. Listen to the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2.11. This is, by the way, this is a great verse to memorize if you're really struggling with some particular impurity in your life. 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What imagery that is. Those passions of the flesh, those passions and desires, just beating up your soul, tearing you to pieces, waging war on you. That should wake you up. Paul says something similar in Romans 7. We'll get there, verses 22 to 23. Listen to what Paul says there. It sounds a lot like what Peter is saying as we have this imagery of waging war against the soul, this inner man. Paul will say in Romans 7, 22 to 23, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is very interesting language as we try to think about what it means to be human post-conversion. There is an inner being of a Christian in which we truly do keep the law from the heart. We truly do. Romans 8, 4 will talk about that. We we do keep the law from the heart in the inner being, the inner being of the person. I delight in the law of God in my my inner being. Sounds a lot like Psalm 1. He delights in the law of the Lord. But I see in my members another law. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Waging war against the law of my mind, that inner being, And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The fact that there is even an inner being shows Paul is not captive. But that his passions in his flesh make him captive momentarily to sin. Do you see that? So there is an old principle operating within us that is contrary to our new identity in Christ. By the way, the unbeliever knows nothing of this. Sure, the old idea of the sort of devil on the one shoulder and the angel on the other and sort of torn between the two, the unbeliever does indeed have a conscience. The unbeliever is made in the image of God. And the unbeliever recognizes that making one choice brings certain effects. And making another choice may bring more pleasing effects. 
But know this, there is no battle going on in the heart of an unbeliever. There's only one king. There's only one king always in that heart. The flesh. That is what Paul is referring to here. This old principle operating within us that is contrary to our new identity in Christ. The flesh. And how do we understand this concept of the flesh? And we'll talk more about that as we go on. But I think what we see here is that it is sin carried along by passions and desires operating in our mortal bodies. I'll say that again. It is sin carried along by passions and desires operating in our mortal bodies. Listen to the way John MacArthur describes it. I think this really gets at it well. One day, that body will be glorified and forever be out of sin's reach. But in the meanwhile, it is still mortal. That is, subject to corruption and death. It still has sinful lusts because the brain and the thinking processes are part of the mortal body. And Satan uses those lusts to lure God's people back into sin in whatever ways he can. So when I say body, don't think merely eyes and ears and mouth and so forth. It also involves everything about us as, human, as embodied human beings in our thinking as well, in our willing as well, in our coveting. We are a body-soul union. It is difficult from a Hebrew perspective, to even think about the body and the soul separately because we are so intertwined as human beings. And so what we see here is the body, the mortal body in thinking processes as well as doing. So back to our sub-point, what we face as we think about our condition, we face an enemy. That's the short answer. We face an enemy an enemy within us. You brought your enemy to church this morning. He or she is here. Within us all. Acted upon from without the world, Satan, but the enemy partly is within us. And by the way, let me just say something to us in this watered-down Christian subculture we find ourselves in today. Here's the problem with this slogan, follow your heart. So just get this. If you're an unbeliever, well, that's a terrible idea, period. We've already talked about that. I won't camp there because that's only going to lead to what we've talked about. But here's the problem for the Christian. That idea, that whole idea for a Christian ignores everything Paul is saying because what's going on in the heart, passions and lusts and desires of the flesh. Oh, follow that. Follow that. And where's that going to lead you? To no good place. We sow to the flesh, we reap death. Paul says in Galatians 5, don't follow your heart. Follow the Holy Spirit as he leads you by his word. We face an enemy 
And therefore, because we have an enemy, we face the need to fight. And that leads us to our second point, our conduct. So we've seen our condition, and now we come to our conduct. In the last verse, Paul uses the language of mastery or dominion or kingship. Don't let sin reign as your ruler to place you into submission to its passions and desires. Another way that you could say that is don't let this dethroned entity usurp the throne in your life. There is a a dethroned entity in you. He's not in charge. Don't give him the steering wheel. So how do we heed that directive? How do we live in accordance with our new ruler, what we just read there in verse 12 and what we've seen in the preceding verses? How do we live in accordance with our new ruler and not our old ruler, letting him reign? How do we avoid having our old ruler act like he's still in control when he's not? Or she. The answer comes in verse 13. So here it is, verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now I've got to say, as far as practically living out the Christian life, this is probably one of my favorite verses. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is so vivid, it is so practical, and at least in one sense, so simple. Vivid, practical, and simple. And what we have here is one big don't followed by one big do. What we, are, what we are not to do and what we are to do. It strips down all the complications, right? You know, you're reading through your Bible in your devotional time, and John Piper recently talked a little bit about this in a Ask Pastor John episode, you know, the getting principles from the Bible daily and, and how to think about our devotions and what we're extracting from the Bible. And, you know, one of the things that we do, and, and, and this can be useful, is we get a principle and, you know, we kind of put that on a card. We think about that all day and He was kind of getting the the listener to think less in those terms and more in terms of just godliness, growth in godliness and character, more of a fully orbed way of thinking about it. And I think a verse like this helps us do that because it strips away all the complexity of after you've done your devotions, you've got seven things written out that you're going to do today. Yeah, right. Seven things that you're going to walk out and you're going to do conscientiously as you sit at your computer, as you say hello to your boss, as you get in the car, as you greet your children, whatever. You're going to do these seven things or two even. But I think what a verse like this does for us is it strips away all of the complexity and it gives us one big don't and one big to do. There is one thing we must never do and one thing we must always do. In light of who we are and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christian Life 101, summed up in a nutshell, right here in one glorious verse.
So let's look first at the don't. What we are not to do. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, there are two details here that paint a picture for us. Two details that you can't immediately see here in the English text. First is the word for instruments. The word that is translated here as instruments, which should probably be translated weapons. Instruments or weapons. It can be either one. And it should probably be translated weapons, partly in light of the context, but also in line with the way Paul uses the word elsewhere. So just mentally go there, weapons. The second detail is the verb present, translated here as present. This word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And one of the, one of the ways you look at words that are used in the New Testament and you kind of see how the writer might be using that word as you go back and you look and see how did that word appear in the Old Testament, particularly the Greek Old Testament, because you're looking at a Greek word as opposed to a Hebrew word. And so you're looking at how that word was used there. And in the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, this verb here translated present is used for the service offered to a king or a ruler. So for example, 1 Kings 10, 8 the queen of Sheba, remember she comes from the south to Solomon, just enamored with the glory of his rule and reign and his wisdom. And she says, blessed are those who serve or minister before you. And there's that, that verb, that Greek verb there that we find here. So with these details in mind, if we take these two details and we bring them now to the text, we could translate our verse in this way. Do not offer in service your members to sin as weapons for the purpose of unrighteousness. This is battle language. This is the language of the battlefield underseen by a ruler or a king. It depicts us giving our bodily members over to the ruler's sin as though we are in his court, the court of the king's sin, and we give our members over to him, offering homage and service to the king, giving them over to him to be used now, for the purpose of waging war against righteousness for the victory of unrighteousness. And what Paul says here is simple. Don't do that. Do not do that, Christian. Don't let your members be used in that way by that master to that end. And here, as we think about members, so let's just camp out here for a moment on this idea of members, our members. One way to think about this rightly is to go from the inside out and from the top to the bottom. We've got this interesting little um, sheet, laminated sheet, which goes through and has prayers you can pray for your children 
uh, over the different parts of their body. And uh, just a way to think about their feet and their hands and their mouths and their minds and so forth. But one way we can think about our members is going from the inside out and from the top down. And when we do that, we come across these categories at the very least. And we could go on and on here. Thoughts, moving from the inside out. Thoughts, words, deeds, and then from the top down, our eyes, our mouth, our tongue, our hands, our feet. All of this, comprehensively, all of our members that God has graciously given us. From the inside out, from the top to the bottom, do not present them to sin. How? Well, one way, I think, comes from Romans 13, 14. Listen to this. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision. Give not an inch. That's the problem. We give too many inches. And then you wonder why there's a yardstick of sin in your life. Because you gave it an inch. You gave it some. You made provision for it a little. You hear of sexual immorality among Christian leaders. We've heard recently. And you wonder, how in the world did that get to that point? It starts with an inch. It starts small, with little provisions made for sin, until it becomes so massive, there's no turning back. Of course, there is always for the Christian, but at least it's experienced in that way. Make no provision to give your members over in this way. Do not curse in your mind in order that you might not curse with your mouth. Don't think lowly of another person in order that you might not gossip about that person to another. Let not your eyes Linger too long on the bathing suit that you might not commit adultery. Inch provision. Realize that when you do, when you are giving your members over to sin, as Paul describes it here, you are giving to something that is mortal. Isn't that sad? What folly, what foolishness to give yourself over to sin, to give your hands and your eyes and your tongue over, your thoughts over to sin when sin and all of this world and all that is, that is in it is going to perish. It's just going to fall away. It's mortal. It's not going to last 1 John 2, 16 to 17, one of the first passages as an adult that I memorized. I just remember walking, meditating on these verses and just how helpful they were to me at 20 years old. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, 
but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world, the flesh that you sow to passing away, it will not last. Every moment, Christian, we have a choice to make. So let not your doctrine of grace, let not your doctrine of divine sovereignty cause you to err here. And that is in recognizing that every moment you have a choice whether you will present your members to sin or not. Will you give over yourself to this false ruler trying to usurp the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the don't. But now let's look at the do. Verse 13b, the last part of the verse. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Or let's retranslate it in light of what we discovered in the first part. Offer yourselves in service to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons for righteousness. Have you ever thought about this fact? We aren't just engaged in spiritual warfare to play defense. Maybe that's the way you think about the Christian life. You just sort of got your shield up, hunker down, And when those fiery darts come, you just have to make sure you get behind the shield. As long as you get behind the shield, duck behind a tree or whatever else, you will be okay. We are not called to mere defense. We are on the offensive. We are waging war against darkness. Weapons used in service to our great king. By offering our entire selves with all of our bodily members to God's service. That's what it looks like to live the Christian life. Your body, though part of the fallen creation, is now to be used as a means of glorifying God in the world. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? That these bodies that participate and even show the signs of inadamness are turned by the power of God in the soul to be instruments that bring God glory. What testifies to this more than the martyrs? With their burning, eaten, crucified bodies, they bear witness to the glory of God with their mortal flesh, showing this glorious service to God, your tongue for his praises and for building others up, your hands and feet for worshiping, bringing the gospel and serving the needs of others, your minds for meditation on God's truth, your eyes set above and on the good of your neighbor. I love Psalm 145. It's one of my favorite passages of of Scripture, at least at this point. 
Psalm 145, it's just dripping everywhere you look, so glorious. A psalm about God's greatness. And as I was reading Psalm 145 this past week, I noticed how the mind and mouth are connected as the psalm unfolds. So in verse 5, it says this, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Where should your head be? Oh man, there's so much to occupy our attention in our minds, our meditation, our thinking, our rehearsing, our repeating, our fixating on God's majesty and wondrous works. There is enough content upon which to meditate to keep you busy for a thousand lifetimes. Be not bored. Meditate. And then in verse 21, comes out from the heart, from the mind. My mouth, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Not angry words. Not grumbling. But God's praises. All flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. That's how the psalm ends. You should go and look at it. It's glorious. And we do this offering to God as those who have been brought from death to life. We do this, all that we are doing here, as we do not present our members, and as we present our members, we do it consciously as those who are dead to sin, alive to God. As those who've been raised from the dead to newness of life. So that brings us finally to our third point our confidence as we close this morning, our confidence. And we come now to verse 14 where Paul concludes in this way, and he's got much more to say in the rest of chapter six, so we're, we have much more that we're going to look at, but at least this little section here, this little, little set of imperatives after the indicative. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So here, Paul gives the reason or the grounds for what he's just said. That little word for is every bit as important as the word therefore. For lets us know that he's given the grounds or the reason. You could translate it in your mind because. It's not always to be translated because, but here it helps make sense of the logic. He's just called Christians to arms. After telling us what we face, he's told us what we are not to do, and then he's told us what we are to do, what we face, what we don't do, what we do. But oh, how heavy. This all sounds great, right? But how heavy it is. How difficult is the fight? We've read and seen Pilgrim's Progress, many hardships. Many setbacks, much fumbling. Sounds so great. But then you walk out of the building and, or even now, it's difficult. And that is why, listen to this, that is why Paul ends on this, verse 14, reassuring note. This confidence-building note. 
And basically, this is what he says, Christian. This is what he says. Sin can't win. That's what he tells you in verse 14. So he's just told you, fight. Oh, fight. But then he tells you, after telling you that in verse 14, but sin cannot win, Christian. It's already been dethroned. So this is what he's saying. Face your enemy. Fight in your battle with the utmost confidence that all is secure in Christ. And let me say this to us. Notice that what Paul says here about the surety of God's grace, about the surety of our standing in Christ, and about the fact that we no longer under sin, is not meant to lessen the fight, but to motivate its intensity. See the logic. This is so important. Because some of us may think that when we come to consider the grace of God, what he does for us by his own initiative through Christ, gives us this sense of kind of, well, I'm saved. And it lessens that that grace has the effect, at least, as we're understanding grace and as we're misusing and perverting grace, it has the effect in us of lessening the fight against sin. Let me say this to you. If your grace lessens your fight against sin, you don't understand grace. If, If the grace you subscribe to does not create within you this ardor, this intensity, this militant fight against sin, then you have perverted the grace of God into license. You don't understand the gospel. Grace simply does not do that. It backs the fight. It fuels the battle. So if you have become passive and lazy in the Christian life, and you're noticing that in those moments of passivity and laziness, you're, you're, you're sort of finding yourself just sort of falling back on this idea of grace, this vague and general extracted from the Bible and twisted idea of grace. I would encourage you to pay heed to the apostolic logic of grace and holiness, of justification and sanctification. We are no longer under the law, Paul says here. This is why sin does not have dominion. We are no longer under the law that highlights and heightens sin. We are no longer under law with its condemnation, but we are under grace. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5, 2, that through Christ we have also obtained access by faith, listen to this language, into This grace in which we stand. That's where you are, Christian. And what Paul is doing is he's giving you a nudge. He's reassuring you that as you fight this battle, and as you slip in the mud, and you face plant, and as you it feels as though you're being crushed, he's telling you, look, stay with it, keep fighting. Because sin has not won and it will not win. And you are not under the law, but under God's precious grace in Christ. 
That's why Paul says in Titus 2 that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what the grace of God does. As we marvel, you know, there's probably no better place you can go for this than the Puritans. The Puritans were a people who understood the freedom of the Christian in the grace of God and the joy that the robust joy of being a Christian. And yet, the intense fight for holiness that should mark every Christian. Let me finish with a quote here from a commentator, Douglas Moo, which I think is just so helpful. To put a stop to the reign of sin, to stop engaging in those sins that have too often become so habitual that we cannot imagine not doing them. Is that you? It is a daunting responsibility. We feel that we must fail. But Paul then reminds us of just what we have become in Jesus Christ. Dead to sin, alive to God, there has already taken place in the life of the believer a change of lordship. And it is in the assurance of the continuance of this new state that the believer can go forth boldly and confidently to wage war against sin. So today when we say, at the end of the service, go in peace. This is what I want you to hear. Go to battle. Go to battle as you live in peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for its power, for its clarity. Thank you, Father, for how it highlights our sin and just helps us to fight. Lord, may we all fight. Lord, I pray that if there's a person among us this morning who would say, I I don't experience that battle. Lord, I pray that you would show them your grace. That you would convert them. That you would make them to be dead to sin and alive to God. That what we read in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, that you would take them from verses 1 to 3 and cataclysmically, earth-shatteringly break in as you do at the beginning of verse four, but God, and that you would transform their lives. God, for all of us, we pray that the logic that we encounter here would give us greater understanding of the Christian life and greater appreciation for who we are in Jesus. Lord, I pray that where laziness and passivity have set in, that we would be awakened to vigilance and to battle. Lord, where discouragement in the fight has set in, I pray that we would gain greater confidence and assurance 
that the battle has been won and will be won forever. Lord, grant us grace to know you more deeply, to walk with you more closely. Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper now, would we remember back to where all of this originates, that fountainhead of Christ crucified, who gave himself in our place for our sins so that we could be free of our sin guilt and of its power. Thank you for Christ. And we pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that our minds would just be celebrating and rejoicing in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.